Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Scott Hancock, and I host From Queer to Eternity, a new podcast exploring what it means to be queer, where we have com- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Conversations like this. I look at younger generations and go, you can just google this stuff. The fact that the only mention of queerness was don't ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com Let's get this dinner party started. Get AIDS. <laughs> if I'd been marrying a girl, that would not have happened. Maybe we can find a, a universality that, that we weren't aware of before. That's why this podcast's so great, because actually, well, I guess we just don't think speak of this stuff, and yet it's part of our fabric. From Queer to Eternity, available to listen to now from the Great Big Owl Company. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode 59 of Charts Music. I'm your host, Al Needham. I'm still here with Neil Corkani and Taylor Parks. We're not going to fanny about, we're going to rejoin the episode of Top of the Pops in progress. Okay, 
Okay, got the joke, lads. Over here, Samantha Fox, who's gone up 12 places this week to number 12. And do ya, do ya, wanna please me? Back to all night on the balcony with three of the house Martins, minus Hugh Whitaker, who's probably breaking down his drum kit or hasn't been allowed to be seen in his arm, the unemployed t-shirt again, and a bloke holding up a London nil hall four scarf. As Janice introduces the next act while the house Martins do rabbit ears on her, the bloke in the scarf starts gurning and Norman Cook and Stan Collymore grimace and give the thumbs down to Samantha Fox and her latest single, Do Ya Do Ya Wanna Please Me. Born in Mile End in 1966, Samantha Fox was a singer who formed her first group at school at the age of 14 and a student at the Anna Shear Theatre School. When she turned 16, she signed to Lamborghini Records and under the name SFX, she recorded Rocking With My Radio, a cover version of the 1981 French Europop singer Leslie Jane single. In the same year, her mother entered photos of her to the Sunday People's Amateur Modelling Contest Girl of the Year. Out of 20,000 entrants, she was selected as the winner by the editor, but when he solicited opinions from the female members of the paper, she was downgraded to second place for being too mammarian. (laughs) After her dad packed him working as a carpenter to manage her career, her parents gave their consent to post topless, and she was signed to a four-year contract to The Sun. And on February the 22nd, 1983, a nation of van drivers opened the sun, saw the headline, Sam 16 quits A-levels for O-levels, <laughs> slapped the back of their necks and went quaw before violently masturbating into an empty ginster's packet that was on the dashboard. <laughs> By the spring of 1986, she'd become page three girl of the year three years in a row and had her breasts insured by Lloyds of London for a quarter of a million pounds, was reportedly earning five grand a week, was planning to buy a house two doors away from Margaret Thatcher, was lined up in a park for a new soap opera about posh people who get servant girls pregnant and had become Danny Baker's replacement in LWT's The Six O'Clock Show, where she did an Esther Ranson and interview the general public hang on a minute she was going to buy a house two doors down from margaret thatcher well like number 12 downing street no 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 margaret thatcher bought um, a a big baritone somewhere for a retirement oh right and uh sam fox bought one two doors well was going to right that's what the sun said anyway so it must be true (laughs) but the call of the recording studio was too much and she signed a deal with jive records and put out the single touch me i want your body Hyped up relentlessly by the sun, it entered the chart at number 22 in late March of this year and then soared to number four the next week, eventually getting to number three over here and becoming number one in Australia, Canada, Finland and Switzerland. This is the follow-up and the second cut from the debut LP Touch Me, which comes out next Monday. 
It entered the chart last week at number 24, and this week it soared 12 places to number 12. And here's Saucy Sam in the studio, backed up by the Hanoi rock spin-off band The Cherry Bombs, featuring former Sham 69 bassist Dave Tragunner and Terry Chimes, formerly of The Clash, on drums. Oh. So, yeah, that intro. (laughs) They try and do a joke, which it's fair to say... Uh, Janice doesn't she doesn't really nail the punchline quite the way a professional comic might and I, I'm just unnerved why the drummer's not there like he's off sharpening or something. <laughs> I mean that the, the thumbs down gestures from Norman Cook and, and Stan Collymore it, it seems massively off from the house mods it's a bit disparaging but it is worth remembering that only recently Gary Bushell of The Sun has written an article entitled House Full of Hate which had been called from various music paper interviews which alleged that they wanted to assassinate the Queen give free guns to women and it also revealed that Norman Cook real name was Quentin and he came from Rygate. I see. Bushell also claimed that uh, Norman Cook was gay, which rather upset Cook's fiance at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, Samantha Fox had told The Sun that she would only enter their new offices in Wapping, which was surrounded by razor wire and surrounded by pickets, in a tank, which encouraged a paper to do a photo shoot of her crossing the picket line in an armoured staff car oh, yeah. wearing a tin helmet. So, in the ah. eyes of the House Martins, yeah. Samantha Fox is essentially Kelvin McKenzie with tits. Yeah, mm. I forgot yeah, that. That explains it. So, yes, three middle-aged men talking about page three girls of the 80s. This is going to go down well, <laughs> isn't it? Let's get the Finbar Saunders stuff out of the way. Samantha Fox, absolutely fucking massive in 1986. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In the papers every day, even when she had a top on, everyone had an opinion on her, and her own opinion was sought on every single issue of the day. She was on the cover of the Mirror the day after the World Cup quarterfinal between England and Argentina, uh, under the headline, We Was Really Robbed. As England fans suffered last night, many British stars shared their misery, and Samantha Fox had eyes for only one man as she watched at home with her family. Diego Maradona is a brilliant player, she sighed. But when I saw the replay of the first goal, I thought it was definitely handball. Tonight, I just feel let down. (laughs) That article goes on to say that Ernie Wise said that that Belladonna fellow did his job well. He really put England to sleep. Roy Hattersley <laughs> claimed that England were hypnotised by Maradona and Tommy Steele cried at his own party at the injustice <laughs> of it all. Oh, Maradona, you bastard. Yeah, well, it's, it's easy to forget that round about this time, Sam Fox was a bit of like a national working class mascot. Mm. You know, yes. like she was painted onto the fuselage of our collective mental b52 bomber you know what i mean like <laughs> the nation's favorite yeah. i mean yeah of course she had her knockers oh, I, I promised God. myself i wasn't gonna say that i, I had to look myself in the mirror this morning and said don't say that 
not only riding high in the pop charts, but also in the computer games charts. Uh, apparently this week, um, <laughs> a video game, Samantha Fox Strip Poker, is being ported over from the Spectrum, where it's been number one for ages, right. over to the Commodore 64. Did you ever play that game? Oh, that's interesting, because no. my mate who had a Commodore 64, I've mentioned before, used to make samurai swords and listen to Venom a lot. Yes. He was the one who had, he had a scrapbook. He kept a page three models at this time. You know, which which mainly contained the big three, which yes. I'm guessing is like, I mean, it was a Fox, it was Lissardi, and it was Whitaker, and he favoured Whitaker. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, he was delighted in 87 when um, Maria Whitaker appeared on the cover of um, Barbarian the Ultimate Warrior. Yes. Um, by, <laughs> along with Wolf from Gladiators. And then they appeared again, the <laughs> Barbarian 2, the Dungeon of Drax. But, um, yeah, I... I, mm. Even with her Thatcherism, I always got on with Fox, to be honest with you. I liked her from the off. Um, perhaps yeah. down to her smash hit singles reviews. Yes. They were hilarious when she reviewed The Fall and The Smiths and that and took the piss. Mm. She always struck me as a good soul, I think. Quite incisive and funny when she talks about music. And just yes. keen to go as far as she could with what she had. Because mm. the roots out of page three are pretty limited. But... Um, she went as far as she could. Yeah, she's announced earlier this month that she's retiring from page three, which was a load of bollocks because she still had a year left on her contract. But, you know, she was mm. told by her mum, who used to be a dancer on Ready, Steady, Go, that you've only got until you're 21 before gravity takes over. So, uh, yeah, you, you, you better find a way out, which is usually, you know, <laughs> opening a beauty salon or a dance studio. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to her credit, right, it's a big leap from um yeah lobbing your bristles out in the tabloid press to mm. singing and dancing and doing rock things with the mic stand but she does come across on this performance like a proper trained front person obviously she's got the experience of being in a band yeah. which was her initial ambition before page three came a knock in the the narrative mm. of the song is really about sexual stamina <laughs> and at least it gives them more of a sense of agency and empowerment than touch me did because Touch Me, it, it, it's easy to forget what Touch Me is like lyrically. Yes. Yeah, I wonder when this was going to come up. Yeah, like yes. a tramp in the night, I was begging you to treat my body like you wanted to. Mm. It's not exactly um, empowered stuff. Yeah, she, she's moved on from sex vagrancy. <laughs> like you've said, Neil, she's no stranger to the pop game. But she's trying to position herself, as Smash Hits would say, a vixtress. Yes, Absolutely. And dabbling with the leather fringes of rock. Yes. I mean, in that Melody Maker interview that that bloke was slagging off in the letters page, she laid out her credentials to Carol Clark, claiming that her first gig was seeing Inferiot at a CND benefit, and she saw the Stranglers at the Rainbow. She used to have posters of Jimmy Percy on her bedroom wall, Mm. and she's best mates with Lemme. The article, of course, was called Tickle Tackle. (laughs) <laughs> Carol Clark used to bring strange people into the Melody Maker, you know, and this is why you'd get, I don't know, Mad Frankie Phrase reviewing the singles one week, because Carol Clark just bumped into him in a pub and became friends hell. and stuff. So, yeah, and I'm guessing it was Carol Clark that actually brought Sam Fox into the fold at Melody Maker a little bit. But mm. that leather and lace thing you mentioned, that kind of, that Lita Ford slash Lisa Dominique look, um, yeah. is, is very much something that Sam Fox is, is going for at this point. Yeah, Susie Quattro of the 80s. Yeah, and a record company have totally surrounded her with that style. Unfortunately here, they've not really given her a memorable song because this is barely music, really. Mm. And and in an era of appalling guitar solos, the one on this that manages to combine 
um, sort of Chuck Berry and Ingway Mousteam in ways no one wants or needs to hear is really one of the most ridiculous things you've <laughs> ever heard. But I don't think it really matters whether it's a good song. And that's kind of etched in Fox's eyes too in this performance. It's all about going for the gusto, putting it across. And she does it. I think she does it really well as well. Do you think she would have been better served trying to be uh, a bit more Europop as she was in the beginning? Potentially. That could have been disastrous though. That, that, I mean, she, she absolutely couldn't be. Um, because physically, I'm not saying she resembles her facially or anything, but in terms of body type, she could have been a Paula Abdul or something. But, mm. um, but no, I think she was right to go this way. I think that was where her natural musical inclinations would have gone. Um, so perhaps they should, they should have given her the kind of songs they were giving Bonnie Tyler at this point, maybe. But I don't know whether she's exactly got the pipes um, yeah. needed to do this. Yeah, she can't sing a note. That's the trouble. <laughs> yeah, this is it. See, the thing is, I think the problem, like she's a rock fan. So they thought they'll give her a rock song. Yeah. The trouble is, the people in charge of this record, writers and producers, have decided, well, you know, we've got to go raunchy because mm-hmm. there's, there's no other option, right? And, of course, that's raunchy yeah. in this mid to late 80s sense of, like, soft metal, mm. wristbands and mullets and, like, the sort of music that might be playing in a Dean Street clip joint at lunchtime. You know <laughs> what I mean? And, and and it means Sam has to do all these growly, throaty sort of like back of the Sunday papers sex chat line uh, vocal bits, mm, you know. Yeah. And of course, it's a huge misfire because the whole point of Sam Fox, the reason why people, or the reason why the people who liked her liked her, was that she wasn't raunchy and American no. and mm. fierce mm. and assertive. She was a chirpy Cockney sparrow. Yeah, uh, who was all smiley and bubbly and uh, like an everyday person and best mates with her mum. And mm. she was sort of unchallenging in all the ways that a certain kind of bloke appreciates, right? Like she was small and young and she didn't come across as, you know, especially clever or difficult or uh, troublesome. And she had that air of like brassy Britishness, like most of the yeah. other great British bombshells you know like Barbara Windsor she'd go all right and not be remotely slinky or Mm. erotic Mm. in her manner right that was the whole appeal it's like the combination of that and the exposed boobs as they used to call them and the sort of you know slightly smoky eyes right which was just enough sexual signifiers for the great British public Mm. because the great British public are obsessed with sex but at least in those days not comfortable with anything serious right Mm. any version of sexuality Mm. where you can't just grin and nudge the bloke next to you in the ribs you know (laughs) and that's what sam fox was it's not sex it's slap and tickle in it yes i mean we need to talk about this a bit and i'm sorry to go on but this is like my non-existent dissertation topic so (laughs) forgive me if i go on a bit here but in the 80s the general perception in this country was that actual representations of sex and specifically the fundamental seriousness of sex, like e.g. images of actual human copulation, were Mm. somehow tainted with a terrifying darkness, right? Like, those people's objection to anything that was sexually explicit, it wasn't like they weren't worried about the the ethics of pornography or the nature of the sex industry or, or, or anything like that. It was 
the, the, the problem was the fundamental obscenity of an essential human truth, right? As if it was like shit yeah. Or, yeah. or dead bodies and it had to be kept away from us mm-hmm. for reasons of public health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you, you, you could talk about it, you could joke about it, but you couldn't ever look into its eyes or mm-hmm. wherever mm-hmm. or you might lose your soul, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And that censorship is what forced... British representations of sex down the one acceptable available channel of comedy, right? Mm. Like that mm. the tradition of blue jokes and music hall and you know, is so by nineteen eighty six, most male adults' experience of growing up and the sexual imagery that they'd experienced was like twenty percent dirty mags and, and calendar girls and page three, where it's just women presented as motionless objects uh, mm. and 80% on the buses. Um, <laughs> and this is how Britain was perverted and you ended up with this degraded and defused national sexuality where people were sort of expected to come and cackle simultaneously, mm. you know. And, it's, and that I didn't come just then. No, I'm, just, I'm pleased to hear it. Actually, I'm not pleased to hear it. Oh, you should be enjoying this more. But... <laughs> But that negation of the deeper and more serious aspects of sexuality also has serious consequences in other ways, which are sometimes a bit darker, you know. And it's like my problem with page three, like, I mean, regardless of any other problems anyone might have with page three, what always creeped me out was the stillness of it, um, which is like a stillness, the only possible response to which is objectification, because... It's obviously all still photographs are still, but the odd mute stillness of page three always felt like a hangover from the 1950s where the Lord Chamberlain decreed that you could have nude or nearly nude girls on stage at the Windmill Theatre, provided they didn't move. Mm. They could only form like a creepy tableau. And, and freeze yes. because yeah. anything else was too sexually suggestive. Of course, the ironic thing is that in 1950s Britain, keeping perfectly still was probably much more suggestive of most people's actual experience of sex <laughs> than if they'd let them move about a bit. But how creepy is that? It's like, oh, no, all right, it's okay as long as you don't look like you're alive. Yeah. <laughs> or that you have any agency at all. Um so, I mean, people fret rightly about young lads these days watching internet porn, a lot of which is quite extreme and is mm. really for experienced and slightly jaded adults. It's not a helpful educational tool for 14-year-old boys. But in a way, this kind of thing was worse for young people's development, including the ideas that it instilled about female sexuality and sexuality in general. Right, because all that chortling really obscured the fact that sex is playing with fire, both in a good and a bad way, mm. and that's an important thing to be aware of. That's important knowledge. That's a kind of uniquely British thing that you're talking about, though, isn't it? And, yeah, and I wonder yeah. if there was ever a time when it wasn't thus in Britain. I, yeah, I don't know. 
Because if you look at representations of sex from like the old, old days, uh-huh. before this kind of prudish attitude took hold, it's still jokey and bawdy. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So it may just be that that's just a natural fit for the British psyche. Mm-hmm. But the, the fusion of that and moralism and censorship really unpleasant the fact it dovetails perfectly with like a hatred of like queer stuff and alternative sexuality of any kind it's just a horrible horrible destructive thing Mm. the poison of that is still in the british sexual bloodstream as it were it's a very british thing because you can't even say it's a northern european non-mediterranean thing because i mean look at the countries that share our lines of latitude, if you will, and, and they're not remotely like yeah, that. Correct. Yeah, correct. Correct. All the other Protestant North European countries are completely, like, to the point of being blasé about sex, yeah. you know. Mm. It's like they don't really have a concept of the dirty or the naughty because for them mm. sex is like a, you know, it's just a, a healthy thing like eating carrots, you know. It's just <laughs> what you do. Yeah. Mm. In a way, that's quite bad as well. I think because you know because because I'm British. It's like we have that dirtiness, that concept of filth is a is a is a good thing. It's just like a lot of good things. It only exists because of a lot of terrible things that have happened mm, in the past. Mm, yeah. So, chaps, let's fast forward to 1997, uh, and I'm in my last few days at Dickie Desmond's Wank Factory. I'm a freelancer by now, so I'm doing anything to cover my arse. Mm. And they're giving me this job where I had to make cover-mounted grot videos for their wank mags. Um, and that involved me in a Television X video suite from about 10 o'clock at night right through to the morning with a big stack of electric blues having to <laughs> lash them together into compilations. Now, nowadays, due to technology and uh, more liberalised um, censorship rules, uh, I could piss that out my arse. But it's 1997, so I'm on the old school reel-to-reel suites and I'm under the heaviest of manners from the BBFC. So I've been told that there's to be no gratuitous fan air, uh, no arseholes and no diddling. And I just thought, well, yeah, fair enough. Electric blues, they're softer than cow shit. What's the problem? Yeah, and they yeah. said, no, you don't understand. They can't even look as if they're about to touch their fannies. If their hands pass within two feet over their groin, you've got to cut it out. <laughs> so I've spent an entire night looking at 80s women with hairdos like wicker lampshades rolling about and pulling faces <laughs> like dead horses. Just screaming at the screens going, no, don't touch your fanny. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> So by about 6am, I've fucked off with this shit job. So I go to the kitchen and have a coffee, try and, you know, wake myself up a bit. Now, I'm supposed to be the only person in this building apart from the security guard. But as I'm walking down to the kitchen, I see this woman and she's like, she's hunched up on the floor up against the wall, like Michael Jackson in that drawing in the history booklet. And it's Samantha Fox. (gasps) It's Samantha fucking Fox. What the fuck? She's sat there trying to look as small as possible, and she looks like the whole fucking world is on her shoulders. Yeah. I mean, fuck knows what she was doing there. I'm, I'm guessing she was waiting for a meeting with the controller of Television X to try and get some work. And I just said the first thing that came into my head, which was, Oh, hey, up, Sam, how are you? Do you want a cup of tea? <laughs> and she said, No, thanks. And I said, Oh, all right, and take care, Doc. 
and I go into the kitchen. Oh, my God. Now, I'd love to be able to sit here and say that I did go over with a mug of tea and say, come on, Sam, let's, you know, let's go and sit on the balcony and, and share our problems. But she clearly didn't want to be bothered, particularly by the likes of me. <laughs> so I just ended up peeking through the window of the door to make sure that I wasn't hallucinating. And, and, and even today, I think, you know what, did I imagine that? And did the fucking seat lad out of show Waddy Waddy come cartwheeling down the corridor as well? <laughs> that's that's chilling. That's Force's sweetheart. That's, oh, man. Isn't it? I felt so sorry for her, but I couldn't say anything. I couldn't do anything. That's a genuinely sad story, that, isn't yeah, it? Is. it is. Yeah. I mean, who'd have thought when you saw her crushing through the picket line in an armoured truck <laughs> with a fucking crash helmet on, you'd go, you know, I'm going to feel really bad for that woman one day. <laughs> But to finish what I started off saying and then got waylaid for about 10 minutes on my fucking obvious, um, the problem with this record and this performance is that Sam Fox, the pin-up personality, and Sam Fox, the person, both of whom were about this cheery, you know, mm. she works down that cafe, kind of thumbs-up <laughs> cheekiness, yeah. have been handed this great, wobbling slab of uncooked raunch Mm. and she's expected to somehow deliver it convincingly Mm. because despite what i was saying before pop music was one area where british people were allowed to let loose a little bit more with expressions of desire and sexuality especially post madonna you know it was even women were allowed to do it post madonna right so the obvious logic is all right we're writing a song for this girl She's a topless model and blokes fancier. Mm. So automatically they go for this kind of, give me what I want. Can you please me right now? Mm. And of course, Mm. Sam Fox is no better suited to to delivering a song like that than Sue Pollard would have been. Yes. Because uh, that's not what her sex appeal was, even to the people who loved her. She, Mm. you know, she was more like a seaside postcard or Ivor Biggin. You know, or uh, yes. those Bob Godfrey cartoons about the Karma Sutra that they used yes. to project at rugby club piss up. <laughs> it was on OTT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't fit with any actual representation of human desire, that stuff. No. Even the ludicrously stylized representation of human desire that you get in a, a grim-faced, hip-grinding piece of crap sex song like this right Mm. it's just it's the wrong song for her and the fact that nobody at any point (laughs) it just doesn't look convincing does it just goes to show that like just really low levels of care and attention be given to this record i know she doesn't put the song across totally convincingly because it's a fuck awful song i have to say her mic work her swinging of the stand, etc. Mm. She's not a bad front woman of a rock band, but mm. yeah, the song does her no favours whatsoever. No. Yeah, it's like if uh, Sisters of the Moon by Fleetwood Mac had just come down off a three-day codeine binge, like horrifically <laughs> constipated and yeah. woozily unsure of itself. And if I was to say to you that a former member of The Clash is on this 1986 episode of Top of the Pops, you'd have thought, oh, big audio dynamite. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's Tory Crimes himself. <laughs> I bet Joe Strummer was well fucked off about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was really surprised when you said it's an actual band 
Um, mm. I thought it was like just a stupid pretend band. Mm, yeah, so With did Wayne I. out of our V-Design pet <laughs> on guitar. <laughs> they look like someone sent them off with a stylist to get togged up, but mm. they only got as far as one of those little denims shops that you used to get <laughs> yeah. in the shopping centre in provincial... T- you know, like called something like Jean Pool or, uh, <laughs> you know, Denim Dungeon or Fancy Look or something. And, and the only one who doesn't look like that... Is Tory Crimes, who looks yes. like he's murdered someone and is now trying to flee the country, but he's got to appear on top of the pops first. Yeah. Well, it's just weird. In the, I mean, in this period of pop, it, it's very much the case that American ideas are very much dominating yes. a, a lot of things. If, if things aren't yeah. directly inspired by black American pop or by European dance music, then what they tend to sound like is very much in hock to this kind of American AOR kind of sound and this this is the years of fucking cunts like jonathan king getting getting the american charts on top of the mm. pops kind of coming home to roost a little yes. bit that sound is just fucking everywhere if yeah. you can't be in a, in a sense if you're not if you're not going to engage with what is truly modern in this era then you're going to sound like this and it's it, in a weird way i'm not i'm not saying it's the same but it's similar to the Gary Newman song that we've just heard mm. in, in that it's been a yeah, big, yeah. ugly guitar solo, big pointy headstocks. There's nowhere else for rock to go at this point, if it wants to be popular anyway. Well, the thing is, if you want to hear Sam Fox tackling other musical styles, the afterlife of her pop career did involve her tackling other musical mm. styles. She did get a bit Euro pop yeah. again. Mm. Um, but I suggest you listen to the only really interesting Sam Fox record, which is a 1991 single, Hurt Me, Hurt Me, brackets, but the pants stay on. Yes. Um, with full force. Is a full force track, yeah, but with her vocal. Oh, right. What's weird about that one, even though it's from Loved Up 1991, it's yet another of those 80s anti-sex anthems. Mm. Um, and it's full of all these quite unsisterly lyrics, like, now you know this girl ain't no ho. <laughs> because it's <laughs> it's not an, it's never enough just to say no thanks, end of story. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's always necessary to imply that anyone who values sex for its own sake or just as an antidote to alienation is subhuman and degraded and morally inferior and and must be spoken to sternly. It's the Anglo-American 80s still living on. But it feels really natural Mm. when you listen to that in context because it's like the smiley bangers and mash sex bomb has had to become (laughs) the opposite of that Mm. because it's as if the immense power and even more immense powerlessness that Sam Fox never really asked for and never expected, I presume, and didn't particularly seem to enjoy. It it feels like that's left us cynical and closed in that mm, song, right? You know, right. which is hardly surprising, like mm. because it's like in the same way that in real life it was completely unsurprising when you read in the paper, oh, she's now in a long term lesbian relationship. Yeah, right. Mm. Now I'm not suggesting that that was caused by her being the object of the British public's snuffling attentions because it doesn't work like that. But all I'm saying is, if that had been me, I would probably never have wanted to look at a man ever again as long as I lived. Maybe that's why she looked away from me in the black (laughs) corridor. Like, no, Sam, I've seen enough tits. I've been looking at tits all night. Don't worry. 
I just want to look at a calendar with some kittens on it now. <laughs> so the following week, do you do you want to please me? Nipped up two places to number 10. Thank God I didn't say nippled. <laughs> it's highest position. And due to the Hanoi Rocks connection, it would get to number one in Finland. Later this month, as mentioned in chart music number 24, Fox was invited by Hamburger SV to perform during their pre-season friendly with Liverpool in an attempt (laughs) to quell any threats of football hooliganism. (laughs) Article in the Liverpool Echo, Sam's fans in bust up. Samantha Fox introduced a new dimension to a football match last night and then had to be rescued from her fans in dramatic fashion in the arms of a burly bodyguard. Sexy Sam's gyrating antics in a tight black leather outfit brought a group of fans surging over the barrier and onto the pitch. They surrounded her as she leapt about screaming, Touch me! Touch me! (laughs) The tiny figure with the giant assets suddenly looked very vulnerable as she belted out the words of her song and her father, standing protectively in front of her, had to fend off the fans as they tried to claim a very personal autograph the bodyguard signaled that enough was enough and one of them whisked her up in his arms her dad turned out to be a right cunt didn't he Mm. this is britney spears before britney spears isn't it yeah 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 very much shades of apocalypse now yes yes the (laughs) follow-up Hold on tight, got to number 26 for two weeks in September of this year, but she'd close out 1986 with I'm All You Need stalling at number 41 in December. She roared back in May of 1987 when she teamed up with Stock Aitken and Waterman and took Nothing's Gonna Stop Me to number 8 and would have four more top 40 hits across the latter half of the 80s. Good on her. Yeah. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, But we will. Uh, And there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty Plenty Questions. questions. This week at number 12, we shall meander through the top 40 right now. And it's a chart entry at number 40, it's Haywood with Roses. And a chart entry at 39, The Promise You Made from Cock Robin. Steve Winwood, Higher Love, that's a chart entry at 38. And Billy Bragg with Levi Stubbs Tears, a chart entry at 37. Jump Back, Set Me Free, Dar Braxton down to 36. And the highest chart entry is left of centre, Suzanne Vega, at 35. Down to number 34, The Teacher, Big Country. And Jackie Graham with Set Me Three, down to 33. On My Own, from Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald, is down to 32. And down to 31, Invisible Touch from Genesis. Opportunities, let's make lots of money, it's the Pet Shop Boys, down to 30. And up to 29, it's Brilliant Mind from Furniture. Midjour and Call of the Wild, down to 28. And up to 27, I Can't Stop from Gary Newman. 
Paranormia with Art of Noise with Max Headroom up to 26. And Bowie with Underground down to 25. Down to 24 this week, Vienna Calling and Falco. And up to 23, let's go all the way. It's Sly Fox. Peter Gabriel, Sledgehammer, down to number 22. And Nasty, Janet Jackson, down to 21. Miami Sound Machine with Bad Boy are down to number 20. And up to 19, it's horrible being in love when you're eight and a half, Claire and Friends. The Real Rock Stang, Bang, Zoom, Let's Go Go, up to number 18. And up to number 17, it's Headlines for Midnight Star. Addicted to Love, it's Robert Palmer, down to 16. And Holding Back the Years, Simply Red, down to 15. Staying at 14 this week, it's Queen and Friends Will Be Friends. And Amityville from Lovebug Starsky, down to 13. Up to 12, it's Do Ya, Do Ya, Wanna Please Me, it's Samantha Fox. And the real thing, Can't Get By Without You, stays at number 11. <laughs> we do the top 10 business in a moment. I was a late developer, didn't fall in love until I was 16. But at number 19, Claire and Friends, very experienced. It's horrible being in love when you're eight and all. <laughs> sat in front of the video screen which sports the top 40 logo breaks down the chalk from 40 all the way down to 11 which presumably marks the beginning of the charts being an inconvenience that need to be got out of the way as soon as possible i contend what's jumping out there for you chaps well none of the photos nothing really is because they're all fucking boring i mean mm. as usual with the chart rundown if i'd have been watching it in 86 i'd have been belly aching about the songs that haven't made the cut to be on this episode um namely uh you know haywood roses is in at 40 um i'd probably yes. want to see the sledgehammer video again nasty by janet jackson's in there yeah. robert palmer love bug starsky of course. there's some great singles in there um none of which make the cut yeah. and also i noticed furniture in there uh, who yeah. i believe included yeah. uh, our future reviews editor taylor am i right is that is that yeah. the same jim yeah. yeah of course yeah it is yeah yeah. The man without whom we might have made a positive contribution to the world. <laughs> <laughs> the only things that jumped out for me was Patti LaBelle being uh, pronounced Patti La Space Bell mm. and Suzanne Vega being the highest new entry at number 35. What a vibrant go-ahead chart this is. Mm. <laughs> Janice tells us that she didn't become awakened until she was 16, Possibly by Emily Hughes, but I wouldn't like to speculate. Oh, my word. But the next act are far more advanced. It's Claire and Friends with It's Horrible Being in Love When You're Eight and an Half. Born in Stockport in 1977, Claire Usher was one year old when her oldest sister scaled the heights of Pop Mountain as one of the kids backing up Brian and Michael on Matchstalk Men and Matchstalk Cats and Dogs, which got to number one for three weeks in 1978. Two years later, one of her other sisters and brothers were part of the St. Winifred School Choir, which became the Christmas number one of 1980. 
Earlier this year, Brian and Michael, otherwise known as Kevin Parrott and Mick Coleman, picked out Claire, who was now a pupil at St. Winifred's, to record a demo of this song, which was submitted to a talent competition held by Shaking Swap Shop, Saturday Superstore. And out of over 1,000 entries, it won. Usher was immediately signed to BBC Records and the song was rushed out as a single. It entered the top 40 at number 38 a fortnight ago and after being aided by myriad TV appearances including Wogan, it jumped 12 places to number 26 and this week it's up 5 places to number 19 warranting Claire and her titular companions a shot on the top of the pop stage. First question chaps, is this the last in the line of the kiddie pop acts? I can't think of any that came after this. Um, no. no, I can't. I mean, I think in terms of British ones, certainly. Um, mm. in, as the night has happened and the night has happened, that entire sort of area of things got taken out by the fucking Disney Channel, basically. And, and mm. you know, no, I, I can't think of one from the UK. Uh, even up to the point of X Factor, not X Factor, but, you know, things like Britain's Got Talent, what you've got there is, you know, in mm. contrast to this particular child star, you just get a load of, you know, ruthlessly in the Bonnie Langford mole of being adults in kids' bodies, you know. Mm. But this kind of gauche kind of kid star, no. We, there isn't another one after yeah. this. I mean, we're about three years removed from the mini-pops, which pulled people up and made them question the wisdom of dressing up six-year-old girls as Banana Rama mm. and getting them to sing, I like the way he turns me on. But this... On the surface, at least, is is far less sinister, isn't it? On the surface. On the surface. Mm. Well, have a look at the lyrics. Fucking hell. The girl's a psychopath. Oh, man, the lyrics, you know? The biggest of all my dreams is to hurry into my teens. Mm. I put my mum's high heels on yesterday, so you see I'm growing up in every way. Mm. Hmm. Innocent enough, I guess. Yeah. Thing is, it's like Davy Jones, isn't it, really? That's what it's. I mean, aside from the fact that it looks like him, like same accent, same <laughs> height, same haircut, but also the song is a lot like, uh, you know, years ago I knew a man. <laughs> yes. Here is my mother's biggest fan, except that that was written by uh, Harry Nielsen. Yes. So there is at least some melodic interest. Mm. Whereas this is written by Michael out of Brian and Michael. Yes. So. It just gets straight on a rail once round exactly where you expect mm. it to go mm. and back again. And that's the worst thing about it, really. The fact that this won a Saturday Superstore talent competition. Yeah, it's all Mike Reed's fault. <laughs> despite having been written by a professional songwriter. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, sung yeah. by a pupil of a school which had already had two UK number one hits. Mm. It, the whole thing stinks, yes. let's face yeah, facts. I'm, I'm only surprised B.A. Robertson didn't win God, that competition. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, turn up to collect his prize in shorts and a school cap, you know. Yeah, yeah. oh, it's A.B. Robinson. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the B.A., you, you cheated. This is a competition for children. Ah, well, let me tell you something. Nice guys finish last. You know, like, so, but, I mean, either the whole thing stinks or it just tells you something about what all the genuine entries were like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is also a possibility. Like, we can't let any of those win or or this store will lose all credibility yes. in the eyes of its customers. 
What a shame <laughs> they've been lost in a way. They could have been the great outsider music discovery of our age, you know, like the Shags or something. What yes. would I pay for a huge carrier bag full of all those tapes? Oh. <laughs> yes. But of course, the split second that this record was released, the Top of the Pops appearance was grimly inevitable. Like, partly yes. just because it's on BBC Records, but also because yeah. it hits all those targets. Like, a novelty record, mm. uh, little kids, uh, routine to act out mm. in front of the audience. Yes. And most importantly, it's not something teenagers and young adults would like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah. therefore, it gets fast-tracked onto the show. <laughs> because yes. stuff that teenagers and young adults like was never allowed to dominate Top of the Pops if it could be helped. Yeah, I mean, Top of the Pops has long had to give up its plans on being a family show, but as this is a total BBC confection, it's, it's going on whether they like it or not. Michael Hill's got no say. Oh, yeah. But you, you do feel Michael Hill kind of wants it on. Well, I mean, yeah. even unaware as I was at the time of the kind of behind-the-scenes machinations, there is this feeling now and then that the BBC want a record in the charts and they'd exploit any opportunity they could to showcase this particular one. So it's not just Mm. Top of the Pops, is it? It's fucking Blue Peter and everything else that has to suffer this. I mean, Claire Usher has bagged a double-page spread in this week's Smash It's looking exceptionally moody on some waste ground outside her school, giving off every indication that she's a bit embarrassed by all this palaver already. Mm. Is is that the one that ends with, uh, are you full of chocolate? Yes. She sees a a Cadbury's lorry going down the street and just runs off after it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah shouting are you full of chocolate it's my weird photographic memory for old smash it. yeah and uh, she tells tom hibbert that she's already having the song sung at her in a disparaging way by boys at her school uh-huh. um, she knows that that girl who sang the lead on there's no one quite like grandma is still hanging about the school mm. and her life's been made hell by people singing that song to her. Yeah. and she's worried that she's going to get that for the rest of her life and she wants to give all her royalties to handicapped children so very much the spirit of mm. 1986 mm. living in this yeah. girl but she yeah. looks kind of moody in this performance to be fair it's, yes. it's kind of joylessly mechanical isn't it and there's that bizarre bit at the end as well what the fuck is with her closing pose where she crosses the arms, her arms over her chest like a gunslinger propped up outside a saloon as a warning or some kind of holy relic. It's a really weird fucking ending to this performance. But the thing is, even when St. Winifred's Choir had their hit as a kid, their age, of course, I mean, I was close to their age then. Um, okay, mm. Even then, I hated them. By this point, yes. at the age of 14, this shit you were was like, this was just beneath my contempt. I would have walked out of the room. I would have got myself a bag of Watsits, mm. proper claggy Watsits, finger-staining Watsits before the foil freshness yes. started taking over that ruined Ringo's and Monster Munch, etc. And that's what I would have done. I would have stood in the kitchen eating Watsits as a protest against this even being on top of the pops. Yeah. This would have mildly irritated me at the time. Not very much. I mean, mm. I quite I like her because she's not sailing on the good ship lollipop. Mm. No, you know what I mean, she's, no, I she's like not her really as well. like that. Yeah, but if she was my kid, she could have all the fish fingers she wanted. <laughs> but it would have boiled my blood if I'd been eight or nine yes. myself. Mm. Yeah, because I was quite a weird, bolshy preteen, and I used to get very angry whenever <laughs> I perceived that adults were using children mm. as puppets yeah. and treating them as idiots, you know, or, or creatures that are only there for adult amusement, right? Yeah. Like sort of 
or exploitation. I was a bit sort of kids lib, you know what I mean? Yes. And I particularly hated kids. Kids lib, innit? <laughs> that, what was that? That was in the Till Death is Do Part film, wasn't it? I can't remember. Yeah, he's stumbling back from the pub and there's a, uh, there's some teenagers snogging and he has a go at them and the girl just goes, kids lib, innit? <laughs> <laughs> but I particularly hated kids being made to perform their own childishness, mm. not as an expression of their own feelings or their own experience, exactly. but to fit a demeaning stereotype yes, for Taylor. the amusement of adults. And I was really serious about this. Mm. And it's partly, I think, down to being an only child because only children have a different relationship with the adult world mm. because adults are your only contact for 90%. You know, when you're not at school... And possibly a bit to do with being adopted, which can make you hyper-conscious of your own identity mm. as a kid and keep it in a unstable sort of state of flux. But I think mostly it was down to being a horrible, <laughs> precocious little shit with a <laughs> grudge against everyone and everything. Mm. Um, but just to see this stage set up here with all these kids in the background playing with a skipping rope and playing cards mm. yeah. like it was 1928, <laughs> purely because this record is being marketed to grannies. Um, yes. It's, this is a sort of inside-out, sort of quasi-voyeuristic variation on There's No One Quite Like Grandma, mm. you know. And they're being made to act and speak just a little bit more childishly than they actually would. Mm. Yeah. Bringing back those angry feelings. Even <laughs> now, you <know>. No, you're <laughs> right, Taylor, because I, I can tell you right now what's more horrible than being in love when you're eight and a half is being nearly ten, like Claire Usher is, and, and being forced to sing a song about being in love when you're eight yeah. and a half. Mm. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. you know, when you're that age, if someone said, do you want to make a song and go on top of the pop, she'd go, fucking yes. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then they'd say, right, okay, you've got to sing a song called La La La, I Like Boys, yeah. Let's Get Married yeah, and yeah. Have yeah, a yeah. House and everything. Yeah. When you want to sing songs about real kids' issues, like Boys Are <laughs> or I Am Skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not this rammel. And she don't look happy about it. She don't look happy about it. Yeah, cover of oh. schools out, thumbs up. Yeah. Yes. This? Yeah. No, no, no. And um, also... I mean, it's a shit song anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's mm. I know that's going to be a controversial thing to say, but <laughs> I mean, there are ways of doing this kind of thing a bit more gracefully. Mm. I mean, aside from the basic shitness of the lyrics, right? Like, it, it's horrible being in love when you're eight and a half, got your picture on me wall, got your name upon me scarf. Yes. <laughs> like, who has someone's name on their scarf? That isn't Les or Woody. Yeah, yeah. Or or if, unless your name's West Ham United or something. Yes, you know, yes. Or Berbera. <laughs> well, it suggests to me that this song was originally written about a crush on a, a pop star or a, a celebrity mm. or something, and then right. changed to a classmate. Mm. But he couldn't be bothered mm. to rewrite the main fucking hook line, you know. Just sits there yeah. ruining it. He fucking flat-capped, cheating, incompetent. <laughs> Imagine, though, if you were that age at school and some girl turned up with your name on her scarf. Oh, Jesus. Oh, imagine the shit you'd have to take from your peers. Oh, yeah. Oh, go on, kiss her, kiss her. You're getting married. Uh, You're going to have a baby. Yeah, I'd be taking that shit off my mum. Never mind my peers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what's even worse, it's got that 
strange karaoke backing track. Like, if you yes. listen to the actual music on this, it's, it's the BBC Records speciality, that sort of synthetic grey or, or powder blue uh, non-music, you know, with no mm. form, no features. And what's worse, this is her best song. Because <laughs> I've, I've, I've tracked down a few selections from her, yes, her solo album, which is called Super mm. Claire. Um, yes. <laughs> including her follow-up single, uh, which was called Superman, mm. which sounds more like you expect it to than you would ever actually expect it to. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's completely valueless. It's, it's this record again, but without the gimmickry. And I mean, a mm. more pointless endeavour than that, you'd be hard pushed to <laughs> even imagine. It's like sugar-free meringue. You know what I mean? You're just, you're just <laughs> eating a cold egg. Um, and, and this was the coldest egg of all. Off the top of my head, there's only two kiddie pop singles that this country's ever made that are any good. One of them is I Am An Astronaut by Ricky Wilde, yeah. which I mentioned before, because it's just, just the lyrics about being a kid and just wanting not to be a kid mm. and be anything else but a kid. And um, Babysitters by The Stupid Babies, which was an 11-year-old Adamska and his five-year-old brother on vocals, which was picked up by John Peel because, of course, it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God, you just reminded me of a, a great forgotten one, which on. I made single of the week in about 1997 or something in Melody Maker. It was one of those weeks there was no good records out, but then I found in the pile... This record by these 13-year-old kids from uh, from Bristol. They were like 13-year-old skate punk kids. I remember this review. It was fantastic. It was this song uh, about how they hated Britpop. Yeah. <laughs> and it came on and it went, it went like... <laughs> and it stops and this kid goes, Britpop is fucking crap. <laughs> Why can't anybody see that? <laughs> Cockney assholes doing their bit. I'm just remembering this off the top of my head here. <laughs> Brit pop is really shit. Yes. It fucking broke so good. I remember you, I, you gave it single of the week and I remember wondering whether yeah, you'd yeah. made it up. <laughs> it did actually. Oh, I, I thought, yeah, I, I couldn't believe it was real. And the publicity shot that came with it was the three of them walking around in like a, a car park or something, like waving uh, sticks at the camera and, and going grrr. <laughs> These tiny children um, were fucking great. I think they were called Headcase. Right, yeah. Was the name of the band. I can't remember what the song was called, but. No, it's so great. The best bit is where he, he's like, he does a thing where he goes like, you know, why don't you all fuck off with whatever the line was? And then and then as the music starts up afterwards, just off mic, you hear him go, I mean it! <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, man. Anything else to say about this? Yes. Because... Bring it. The other thing about this record that annoys me is that I'm not convinced that this is a fair and honest reflection even of prepubescent female psychology of the time. Because mm. lately I've been reading a load of girls' comics from the 70s and 80s, yes. um, which I've never seen before, even though I had a girlfriend once who assured me that they were genuinely demented. Mm. 
but <laughs> that appears to be completely true. Obviously, when I was a kid, I just assumed it was all fluff about like ponies yeah. and, and ballet, ballet schools. schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it turns out they were all about ponies and ballet schools, <laughs> but they were about dying ponies and ballet schools that were run as lesbian concentration camps <laughs> and stuff like this. I, I'm fucking astonished <laughs> and yeah. delighted by the sheer <laughs> horror and darkness of these comics. Like, non-humour boys' comics of the time were all about like football mm. and yeah. fighting in wars and stuff. And it was all mm. situations where young lads lost parental protection and authority and had to survive on their wits, you know. Mm. It was basically different scenarios in which males could battle adversity and prove themselves. Whereas yeah. these girls' comics are all full of scenarios where young females could face adversity and suffer mm. and suffer yeah. and suffer before maybe eventually they might prevail. But really that was irrelevant because mm. like, the meat of it was the torment and the tears. Yeah. Um, like, practically every single page of every strip in these comics features a young girl being physically assaulted by an adult. It's yeah. it jaw dropping when you look at that either systematically or just casually, as, and if it's not that, it's a dog or a horse being hit with a mm. broom mm. handle, you know, by old nasty old Alf in his wellies and flat cap, <laughs> like E.G. in the the very first issue of uh, Tammy. This is from 1971. Mm. Uh, there's a strip called Slaves of War Orphan Farm. <laughs> Whoa. What a band name. Yeah. That sounds like a Sven Hassel book or something. But it, make, it makes those Sven Hassel books look like comics for little girls. <laughs> in this story, young Kate, whose mum and dad have been killed in a Nazi bombing raid, is evacuated, because it's set in the war, obviously, mm. right? evacuated out to a remote sort of seemingly idyllic farm in the Lake District, only to discover that it's secretly being run as a slave labour camp uh, (laughs) for the benefit of uh, evil matriarch Mrs Thatcher, um, who keeps keeps the kids locked in the barn, steals all their clothes and sells them, um, (laughs) and forces them to work for hours on end in a quarry with uh, young Ned, and old Benskin standing over them and beating the shit out of them when they fall down. Mm. And week by week, it just gets grimmer. There's a, mm. there's one where, where Kate is trying to save the life of another little girl's slave who's tried to escape, but she's run straight into the man traps that Mrs. Thatcher has <laughs> placed in all the neighbouring fields. Um, and all her, her foot's been mashed up. And Mrs. T has now locked her in one of the upstairs rooms to bleed to death. But as Kate is trying to rescue her, she gets caught by young Ned. And there's one frame where she's lying on the ground while young Ned is hitting her with a massive stick. And then the next frame says, minutes later, dot, dot, dot. And it's her lying unconscious while young Ned walks out of the barn saying, that'll teach you I'm no fool. And... Just little girls seem to just lap this shit up. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really w- There's also No Tears for Molly, where it's 1926 and young Molly Mills arrives in Devon to work as a servant girl to a, an aristocratic family. 
And on the first page, she literally bumps into her new boss, the butler, on the station platform. And he immediately belts her in the face and says, <laughs> you clumsy, stupid brat, take that. Um, God. You know, start as you mean to go on. The other great one is, my father, my enemy, where this girl's <laughs> horrifically violent dad. These are all is great also, names, uh, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you'd see them on a gig post you'd, you'd, you'd oh. definitely think about going wouldn't you <laughs> but in this one the, the horribly violent patriarch is also a, a wealthy industrialist and strike breaker <laughs> uh, so she uh, sides with the workers and helps them out undermining her dad you've so. totally reminded me of something Taylor Right. You know, I mean, one of the things you've mentioned there, this horror aspect of girls' comics, because there weren't really horror stories in the comics that I read um, as, a, as, a, as a boy, reading no. things like Roy the Rovers, obviously. But I'll never forget, my, my, my sister wasn't that into girl comics. She was more of a Jackie kind of, by, by the time she was buying stuff like that, she was buying like magazines yeah. more. But I remember an annual turning up in the house in about 82 uh, for, the, for the girls' comic Diana. And right. um, there was a story in it that, honestly, it etched itself in my memory as much as, say, watching Hammer House of Horror or something like that. It was just this wrong story that really creeped me the fuck out. Called um, The story was called In an English Country Garden. And it was kind of introduced by this kind of man in black type storyteller. And the story was about a family, you know, mum, dad, small boy, baby sister. They move into a new house where the previous occupants have mysteriously disappeared. And in the garden are three sort of seemingly innocent-looking gnomes, right? And a series of nasty accidents starts happening to this family. There's a near-drowning, there's a runaway pram, the cat gets run over. I think there's a... I remember it so distinctly. There was a near-miss involving a lawnmower blade and a fire and the, and the family eventually <laughs> this is for 12 year old girls you know it's for little girls um you know and after this series of accidents the family resolved to leave and I, I remember every single fucking panel unfortunately they're sort of too late in reaching this decision and the gnomes just come and get them one night with their <laughs> eyes all red i remember that really distinctly and, and the story kind of concludes when a few months later a new family moves in and they admire, you know, the realistic little statues of a family oh, in the no. garden. It's uh, the final frame of the little family with <laughs> eyes blazing red and evil expressions on their face. It's burnt into my cortex ever since. <laughs> Uh, girls comics yeah. were terrifying and and they had horror in them which is something i don't think boys comics had no well certainly not, not in, really. in that kind of really distinctly mr jamesian unsettling way but yeah this is before we even get to misty where yeah we, which practically like, invented goth didn't it yeah, yeah yeah in misty even death brought no relief to these unfortunate <laughs> little girls <laughs> so pre- so presumably this is the kind of thing that would have been sloshing around in the head of Claire Usher. <laughs> so could we not have got at least a... Oh, it's horrible being a slave on my orphan farm. <laughs> There's an horrible bloke has broke me fucking arm. <laughs> could we not at least have got a hint of that in this song? No. But no, because no. this record isn't about her no. and it isn't for her. No, it's non our bait, isn't it? <laughs> She's effectively a Brian and Michael corporate logo and nothing more. Mm. Um this is yeah. the, the the spiritual bankruptcy of popular art, you see. Ironically, a theme explored 
albeit obliquely, in Federico Fellini's masterpiece, Eight and a Half. Um, (laughs) Sadly, a film which I suspect poor Claire Usher has never been able to fully enjoy. (laughs) So, after this episode of Top of the Pops was in the can, the paparazzi were desperate to get a shot of Claire with Samantha Fox, but her dad, who was in attendance, wouldn't allow it as, quote... I don't agree with the job that young girl has. (laughs) The following week, It's Horrible Being in Love When You're Eight and Off jumped six places to number 13, its highest position. It was later revealed that less than 200 copies of the 12-inch version of the single had been sold, accounting for 0.2% of the total (laughs) sales of the single, making it the lowest-selling 12-inch single ever. What, was there a dub mix on it or something? (laughs) After jettisoning her friends and becoming Claire, she recorded a follow-up single in an LP called Superman and Super Claire, respectively, but both failed to chart. After reuniting with and friends for the posse cut Welephant with Graham the Singing Fireman, (laughs) matches, matches, never touch. (laughs) They can hurt you very much. She retired from the music scene, becoming so much of a recluse that she turned down the opportunity to present the Saturday Superstore Talent Trophy to the 1987 winner because she had a netball game on that day. Yes. <laughs> and after leaving St. Winifred, she took a drama degree, appeared in the Broadway production of Riverdance in 2000, and is now a teacher in Manchester. According to our secret source of knowledge, Taylor, Wikipedia, she, she also wrote songs for the indie band Shrag. Yeah, which I do not believe to be true, because <laughs> Shrag were like a sort of a bright, a very bright knee band in that sort of tradition, like Huggy Bear, Comic Gain, that sort mm. of thing. Uh, quite arty and and spiky, and there is no record of Claire Usher being in any way musical. So I would put what little I own on that being a piece of Wikipedia vandalism, and I think the finger of suspicion points squarely at the Shrag camp. But I might be wrong. I might be completely wrong. All I could turn up in my research was her living quietly with her husband and kids and i only know that because i stalked her on facebook i'm very pleased to report that there was absolutely nothing funny or interesting about it so well done to her she got away glad to hear that yes just turned her back on the crowd Mm. and all of that jiving around yeah to sit there and not go ah after that Claire and Friends horrible being in love when you're eight and a half staying at eight this week it's Bucks Fizz here they are on video new beginning Janice 
waving back at Claire Russia in front of a neon representation of the disgusting new many fonted Top of the Pops logo defies us not to go ah after seeing the appalling confection that's just been on. Go on then. I dare you. Oh. No, you're supposed to not to go off. Oh, shit, sorry. Neil. <laughs> oh, fuck it. Moving on. She then throws us into New Beginning Mamba Sarah by Bucks Fizz. We've done Bobby G, Mike Nolan and Cheryl Baker's Bucks Fizz all the bloody time on chart music. And the last time we chanced upon them in chart music number 56, they were on the 1983 Christmas Day Top of the Pops, performing when we were young, looking like a load of robots on an After Eight advert, while their latest (laughs) single, Rules of the Game, was failing to do much, eventually becoming the first ever Bucks Fizz single not to make the top four. After a period of woodshedding throughout much of 1984, they roared back in the autumn when their cover of the romantics Talking in Your Sleep got to number 15 in September. But the follow-up, Golden Days, stalled at number 42 in November. A month later, they were all returning from a gig in Newcastle when their tour bus collided with an articulated lorry which injured all four members of the group. Bobby G suffered whiplash, Jay Aston suffered a back injury, Cheryl Baker broke three vertebrae in her spine, and Mike Nolan suffered internal brain bleeding and fell into a coma for three days. With Nolan out of action for the first quarter of 1985, the group eventually realigned and put out the single You and Your Heart So Blue in June of that year, by which time Jay Aston walked out of the band or was sacked, sold her story to The Sun and claimed that she had knocked off the husband of the band's manager and she'd made next to no money from the group due to severe mismanagement. The remaining members of the band immediately put out a statement which read, The group have been unhappy with Jay's contribution for some time and they decided to ask her to leave before the coach crash. As the lawsuits pinged back and forth and You and Your Heart So Blue died on its arse at number 43, the band immediately held an audition at the Prince of Wales Theatre for a replacement and out of 800 entrants who could be no taller than 5 foot 4 so they wouldn't tower over the boys, they unveiled the new member live on Wogan. Shelley Preston, a 21-year-old singer who had just finished a residency at a hotel nightclub in Sri Lanka. They charged into the studio to record the big comeback single Magical, which entered the charts at number 57 in September of 1985, stayed there for two weeks and died. And when their contract was up, they were dropped by RCA. Luckily, they were immediately picked up by Polydor, and this, the comeback to the comeback, which is a cover of a single released by Force 8, a Dooley spin-off group written by Tony Jibber, was released a month ago. After entering the chart at number 55, it soared 31 places to number 24, then soared another 13 places to number 11, and this week it's at its second week at number 8, their first top 10 hit since when we were young, all of three years ago. Oh, chaps, what a story. What a story. Yeah, I love how you say uh, they'd asked Jay to leave before the coach crash. 
Like as mm. if she could, no, she insisted on staying for the coach, yes. coach cross. I'm not going to miss this. <laughs> it was big news that coach cross. I remember and very, big very big. News. I mean, big news enough to the point of yeah, there being crass, appalling jokes being told in playgrounds about it. Oh really? Uh, you know what's their biggest hit? The windscreen, that kind of thing. Um, oh yeah, but yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of remarkable returns after horrific tour bus accidents, this isn't quite up there with you know, say Fairport Convention, who managed to make some of the most amazing albums. <laughs> ever around their horrible van crash but it's it's actually a pretty strong return this as a single and and it suggests mm. a future for books fizz that books fizz never actually end up getting yeah i mean this is supposed to be the triumphant comeback of books fizz and that's how history terms it but it's not is it it's the comeback to the comeback that died on its arse last yeah. year yeah and i can't help thinking that the the judy zook satin tour jackets have been broken out to get this into the charts well just got a feeling about it uh, you might be right i think it's a better song than the other comeback singles this feels mm. more like a guaranteed bank raid th- th- than any of the other comeback singles it's probably the strongest of the comeback singles mm. down to its production to a certain extent but it's also just catchy as fuck um but you know, no one in 86 is really seeing Bucks Fizz as a viable future for UK pop, you know. No. I'm normally very doctrinaire about kind of new members in bands. Yes. You know, except oddly when it comes to my favourite band, The Stones. But but mm. Bucks Fizz make this transition fairly painless with this single. And, you know, it's clear that the record company behind them, this is one hell of an expensive video. Yes. Big budget. I'm reminded very much of things like Wild Boys, of Victims, Culture Club's video. You know, they, they take the band to a warehouse fill it with sub-industrial recruitments and a dance troupe it, it ticks mm. off all those, those big boxes and and you know that's showing a bit of confidence through the budget that kind of in, yeah. in a sense after watching the video it kind of sucks people along in a sense um mm. but it is a catchy song i think it's way catchier than the other comeback singles by books uh, yeah. hence its success yeah you you can see how this video is drawing on other recent videos mm. but it's also another thing on this programme, looking ahead to the late 80s, of all the little-known facts about Bucks Fizz, possibly the littlest known, that not only were they world music pioneers, (laughs) but uh, also in the vanguard of late 80s youth-orientated visual presentation stars, (laughs) as you see here, the 1980s. Would you please welcome African-style dancers in silhouette on metal platforms in the middle distance, swathed in dry ice and blue light against a backdrop of industrial machinery and pipes and Mm. and fans. So get used to this sight Mm. and remember where you saw it first. Disclaimer, this might not be where you saw it first. But this isn't an amazing thing, this record or this video, but you do know that when they first saw and heard this combination, a lot of people at the record company will have felt very confident mm. about mm. it um, because it has got that kind of superficial power and grandeur that is often mistaken for big hit potential by Koki Know Nothing. Mm. Uh, and it, and this was the last big-ish uh, book fizz hit and their biggest for five years because it is fairly impressive and it's a, a reasonably coherent audio visual blast you know despite being by Bucks Fizz in 1986 <laughs> and this mixture of sort of popped up pseudo African music yeah. uh, mid 80s power chords and power drums and a very crafty Giorgio Moroder type bass line underneath. Mm. It is appealing in a sort of trashy way, yeah. um, even though 
inevitably it feels more like a giant papier-mâché and chicken wire construction in the shape of a big hit record mm. than it feels like a big hit record yeah. you know but it's competent and it works even though ultimately it is a bit like taking a load of coke and watching the early 80s tv advert for the west midland safari park yes <laughs> <Hi-ya>! <laughs> <laughs> Except less wonderful. <laughs> just, I just was watching this thinking, oh, I'd love to go on the Splash Cats. <laughs> There's one other definitively late 80s thing stylistically in this video, which is, of course, what they're wearing. That, um, oh, yeah. you know, long coats, sleeves rolled up. I mean, that is yes. that is everywhere in 86. And, books and the boys are out. mulleted up to Ross, aren't oh, they? Yes, oh, Fucking yes. hell. Oh, yeah, proper lockdown here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they've they've undergone a, a, a full visual overhaul. Mm. And, I mean, the main adjustment, though, is the removal of sex. Yes. Mm. Like the era mm. of, of uh, fucks biz is well and it's truly gone. over. There will be no more impure thoughts generated or seemingly entertained by this band ever no. again. No, no. Um, and in all honesty... I mean, it may or may not be down to the absent uh, contribution, as they called it, of Jay Aston, but it's probably the right decision because even with Jay in the group, you could never quite accept those sort of kinky, pouting moves from Mm. people Mm. like Bobby G (laughs) or even Mike Nolan. I mean, two blokes who look like if you showed them a picture of a naked woman, they'd say, oh, my God, what happened to that guy? (laughs) Um, Nor from from Cheryl Baker, who seems very nice, Mm. but the only reason you can imagine her getting down on her knees in front of you is to spit in a tissue and wipe the chocolate from around your mouth. (laughs) Um, And they also have dropped that late Jay Aston period flirtation with the alienated mime artist Weltschmerz, um, which we saw last time they were on, which, let's face it, I mean, it suited them about as well as it would have suited uh, the House Martins mm. or, uh, <laughs> Ma- or Matt Hancock. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So now it's all loose flowing outfits and yeah, loose flowing mullets and this this pan global bullshit vibe, which you know, they're hoping will distract us from the fact that the new girl despite the conditions laid down in in the audition, does appear to be at least four inches taller than everybody else mm. in the group, mm. as well as 10 years younger. Yes, yeah. she's 10 years oh, younger mate. than Shola, and she's clearly being treated as a junior partner. I mean, there's an interview in this week's Smash Hits where, you know, they're still taking the piss out of her accent. Yeah. When some bands take on new members and, and drop old ones, it's supposed to be an injection of new blood, but it... Hardly ever is. It just means, yeah, you're going to get paid less than the rest of us. Yeah. Well, what it reminded me of, there's a, a, a few shots in this video where you see Cheryl Baker and Mike Nolan and Shelley Preston. And it sort of looks like like a swinger couple who've got lucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in loco parentis. There's that same sort of, it's all right, but there's that slightly vampiric vibe to it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? She does seem isolated, the new member, because, I mean, Cheryl Baker is fundamentally who Cheryl Baker is now already. Yes. You know, she's settling into that yeah. mumsiness that would get her, you know, mid-afternoon slots on things like those women later on. You know, she's already mm. settling into this um, yeah. in this period. So the writing's on the wall for Bucks Fizz, really. I mean, the video instantly reminded me of two of the dominant adverts of the era. 
the the McEwen's alive and kicking one where mm-hmm. all those peasants are pushing a big metal ball about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I've got a system, complete new <laughs> system, new system, personal automatic. <laughs> it, it all comes off like the big finale of a stage show that you just can't wait to get out of and leg it to the pub before it shuts. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, this is good, but can it end now, please? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, the hook works, though. I remember it getting a lot of radio play at the time. And mm. I remember it cropping up on a very bizarre compilation as well, this song. A Portuguese disco compilation called Disco Joker. Right. <laughs> um, which came out in 86. It's, it's a demented record, that, because the sleeve is like this horrific kind of clown figure at a disco. The fonts are all over the place. But it's just the tracks that are on it, because this is on it, which is odd enough. It's not exactly a disco song, but so is um, The Smith's Panic. Right. Eartha Kit, This Is My Life. Right. <laughs> just these records that have nothing to do with it. Actually, sorry, now that I remember it, yeah, it's not the Bucks Fizz version. It's the Force 8 version. It's on Disco Joker. The members of the Doolies without Ghoulie. Yeah, seek out Disco Joker just for the sleeve. Disco Joker sounds like a really doomed attempt to try and jazz up its a knockout in the late 70s. Isn't it? <laughs> the worst thing here is the positivity. Like mm. that kind of, like that kind of meaningless, sort of oblivious, blustering mm. positivity. Uh, which usually means that someone's trying to sell you something, right? Mm. It's like, I mean, this doesn't just look like an advert, as you're saying. It it, it is an advert in yeah. both a literal and a spiritual sense. Yeah. For the all-new books fizz with Scrappy J. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, well, people, people have almost forgotten this is what adverts used to look like because the fashion in advertising now is to tickle people and nudge people. You know, it's all small scale and low key and it's got yeah. a ukulele soundtrack and lots of macro close-ups of food and Beards. stuff. Yeah, and a quiet voice. In 1986, the only things that were advertised like that were fruitcake and the Daily Telegraph and yes. everything else. It was just people just walking up to you and screaming in your face. There was like a, an arms race for who could make the most bombastic advert. And so in that sense, if no other, Bucks Fizz are right in line with the times. Mm. And it couldn't be clearer that the early 80s, with their human scale flashiness and willingness to work with one idea at a time, are rapidly receding and for the next few years it's just going to be clutter and and clatter you know and right at this miserable moment for popular culture bucks fizz have caught up with the zeitgeist <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done and in their minds this may well have felt like a new beginning you know here, here we are is page one of bucks fizz volume two you know, mm. but of course, with the benefit of hindsight, you look at this now and you just think, "Yep, next stop, the Falkland Islands." <laughs> <laughs> it's an enforced joy, though, isn't it? I mean, the lyric, "We won't take no for an answer; we will restore all the laughter." It, 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 it's this weird <laughs> mix of kind of forcefulness. You will have fun. You will be part of this new beginning. It's an odd thing. And of course, Bucks Fizz are, are dominating the centre spread of this week's Melody Maker. 
but um, only in an advert for Sharp Electronics. Oh. We've cut a deal with them to front the advertising campaign, <laughs> less books, more fizz. Uh, sharp living up to their name. Though. Which I always took to be a really shit slogan, because, you know, for one, we deal in pounds over here, actually. <laughs> more importantly, you don't want any fizz coming off your new ghetto blaster. No. Because that means there's a no, connection loose or it's been shoddily manufactured. <laughs> They've not thought about it. I tell you what, sad to see uh, Cheryl Baker in the news recently. I don't know if you spotted this, but it said that the pandemic has uh, wiped out loads of planned Bucks Fizz gigs, or rather the Fizz, as they're Mm. called now. Mm. And uh, this, uh, perhaps surprisingly, has cost Cheryl quite a lot of money. And she's now so skint that she's setting up a concert in her back garden in Tonbridge, Kent for uh, right. 148 quid a ticket. Um, <laughs> what? Now, I'm not poking fun here because I don't know whether the Crudgingtons still live around my manor and I'm not uh-huh. taking any chances from what I've heard. <laughs> but the one thing that did shock me in this article was the sentence, bandmate Mike Nolan offered to sprint round with a fistful of cash. <laughs> um, because if I remember correctly, Cheryl Baker was rarely off my TV screen for most of the 1990s. Mm. And I think into the current millennium. Uh, whereas mm. the sum total of Mike Nolan's extra physicular activity appears to have been fundraising for his brain-damaged charity and appearing mm. as wishy-washy in Aladdin <laughs> at the White Rock Theatre Hastings, plus a few other panto gigs, in almost all of which he seems to have played wishy-washy. <laughs> Just typecasting. And it's mastered the part, man. So how exactly was Mike in a position to demonstrate such largesse <laughs> in his colleagues' mm. hour of need? That's what I want to know. I have my theories, but... Nothing can be proven. That's odd. I would have thought Cheryl, out of all of them, would be okay. Just just from the, you know, um, yeah. pay me 50 quid and I'll wish you a happy birthday market. Yeah, and the eggs and bacon million. <laughs> so she's actually having a concert in her back garden. Yeah, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're all jabbed up. Let's go. Uh, well, it depends, you see. Do you get to go through her house to get to the back garden? <laughs> <laughs> or do you have to go around the side, tradesman's entrance? You know, a, a lot hangs on that for me. Will you be able to use a toilet when you, if you needed to? I reckon she'd get portaloos in. Yeah, that's no good though, is it? <laughs> so the following week, New Beginning dropped one place to number nine. The follow-up, a cover of Stephen Stills' Love the One You're With, only got to number 47 in August, and they would never trouble the top 40 again. After their deal with Polydor expired, Preston would leave the group in 1989 to work as a backing singer, model and wife of Steve Norman of Spandau Ballet. I didn't know that. And Tony Gibber stroke Jibber would go on to write, Now Get Out of That, which replaced Paul Hardcastle's The Wizard as the top of the Pops theme tune in 1991. And on that note, pop craze youngsters, we're going to put the tin lid on this part of chart music number 59. Before I go, just to remind you, we do have a big fat video playlist waiting for you. Everything we talk about, everything we listen to, 
Everything to do with July of 1986 is there, so get stuck into it. It's an essential part of your pop craze diet. On behalf of Neil Kulkarni and Taylor Parks, my name's Al Needham, and like a tramp in the night, I am begging for you to stay pop crazed. <laughs> Chart music. GreatBigOwl.com It's an S-Pod thing. The podcast revisiting S-Club 7's insane TV show. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone's binge-watched this. Anyone who's not on drugs. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into my life. Uh, it was honestly <laughs> truly appalling. Guests help me analyse the show in more detail than anyone ever asked for. It feels weird to me to say the phrase sex object in a show that <laughs> was aimed at six-year-olds. Do you think Do you think this is one of the problems with this show is that seven is too much? It's an S-Pod thing from Great Big Owl.